3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation's true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello and welcome to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial. Today we're going to be bringing you some of the highlights from all the amazing conversations and interviews that we had over the course of 2019. We're going to be talking with May Kotsakis about what's going on in the Philippines, following on from our chat with Jane Brock last week about um, arrests and attacks against folks in trade unions and other progressive civil society organisations and human rights advocates. We're going to be following on and doing a part two sort of that conversation with May this week. May is the chairperson of PASA, the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, which is a cause-oriented organisation of Filipinos and non-Filipinos. Good morning, May. Hi, good morning, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Thursday Breakfast. Yeah, this is a very beautiful day, Thursday morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, May, to begin with, um, particularly given actually just before um, that song that we played, we were talking with um, someone about a new website here in Australia called overdoselifesavers.com, which is um, a, a website about about drug use, about opioid drug use, and about you know saving lives through take-home naloxone. I was wondering if we could totally shift gear, um, but talk about, often in the media here in Australia, when we hear about the Philippines, we hear about the so-called war on drugs. So I was wondering, could you give us a bit of an overview about what does this actually mean, particularly behind this government rhetoric? What does the so-called war on drugs actually mean in terms of impacts on people's everyday lives? Actually, many people now don't call it war on drugs because um, they call it war on the poor. Uh, because after three years of the Duterte, you know, war on drugs, so-called war on drugs, the war, the flow of war is not stopped. I mean, the flow of drugs is not stopped. And none of the drug lords are actually incarcerated or, you know, or um, accused. So most of those that are affected, the victims, the more than 27,000 um, victims are poor, they are the underprivileged, students, youth. So this is not a war on drugs. It's a war on the poor Filipinos. Mm. Absolutely. That's so important to, um, yeah, to insist on and know about how... I guess where what what happens from here in the sense of you you mentioned that you know obviously this has been ongoing for quite some time nothing has changed um, what is happening you know on the ground in the Philippines in terms of how are people fighting back against this war on the poor? Yes, uh, the Duterte government is using different forms of uh, violence and attacking the people. Not only this war, so-called war on drugs, also is against all, even civil society organizations, mass organizations, institutions, including churches, who are critical to the government's anti-people policies. 
So um, they are using all kinds of forms of violence, including planting evidence. You know, mm. I think uh, Jane must have already discussed this. When mm. they raid offices and houses, they plant evidence so they can accuse whoever they want to arrest as an uh, enemy of the state. So anyone who is anti-government policies is called terrorist or enemy of the state. And this has been going on, all the maligning, the accusation has been going on. And the president even sent uh, delegates or representatives and even using the uh, Philippine ambassador to other countries to campaign against community organizations and civil society organizations. Mm. So, of course, uh, especially this war on the poor, of course, uh, many poor people disadvantaged, they are frightened as well. They are, they are affected, especially uh, parents won't allow their children to go out at night. So um, many Filipinos are affected. But as I say this, the activists, the human rights advocates, they are not deterred. They know that this is a campaign to terrorize and to, uh, you know, to frighten the people. But they are not affected. They are more and more determined to expose the human rights violation of this government and also all the anti-people policies. Mm. Are human rights advocates and activists being targeted in in other ways, aside, you know, as you said, we talked with Jane last week about these recent arrests of um, people in trade unions. But beyond that, are there other ways in which activists are being targeted by the government? Oh, yes. Um, because they are, you know, um, the government used, like, if they are planning or they want to stop to silence someone or an organisation, they would make an announcement that this organization or this someone is a um, member of the New People's Army, which is the Revolutionary Army, or they are terrorists. And even on the walls, they'll post, you know, the, those announcements on the walls. And um, that is the start. When they start that, then they are going to start harassing the person or the organization to, well, of course, to frighten them. And then later on, they are going to start the, the raids, the arrests, you know. So it, it is like a, a systematic way of attacking the activists. They, and they also, they also, um, use different, uh, you know, different military, uh, they, they have formed different kinds of, um, agencies. They, um, they use the police, the armed forces of the Philippines, and other forms of agencies to mm -hmm. attack and to silence, you know, any any uh, opposition or any critic. Mm -hmm. Just last, I, I tell you, I, one just recently, mm -hmm. the president has um, has assigned the vice president Lenny Robredo as a co-chairperson of this what they call ICAD or Interagency Committee on Anti illegal drugs. So anyway, Rodrigo started, started to ask questions and ask for documents about this uh, anti-drug you know, campaign. Then when he, when he was insistent on asking for documentation, he was terminated. He was stopped by 
didn't pay President Duterte. So there is something that they want to hide. They don't like the, uh, the actual truth to be exposed because I think the reason why Robredo was assigned to this position is to make her a scapegoat because of many, there are already many warnings, many advice, and many concerns from our, around the world regarding this, uh, the 30s war on drugs. So they, you know, the president wants to look for a scapegoat, and Lenny Robredo, his vice president, is a soft target, so <laughs> he assigned her to the position. But then he sucked her. Right, okay. Yeah, because, you know, there is some, I guess, coverage in the international media, isn't there, of the, you know, the extreme number of extrajudicial killings that have happened under under Duterte, Duterte's um, regime. But I guess what you're sort of saying is, you know, there's, yeah, there's there's so much more happening beyond that that I guess doesn't even reach the international media. Yes, of course there are. And, um, and just like other countries, you know, Max, uh, it's not only in the Philippines, in even in the U.S., even here in Australia, isn't it? They they call activists terrorists. Mm. They use this terrorism law to silence any any opposing or any critic. So, and, and many of those news that is happening, especially in third world countries like the Philippines, it's not actually being picked up by the mm. mainstream media. So thanks to this, you know, to the, <laughs> to the progress of um, online and these uh, social media that uh, news also is still, is still come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because as you say, it is such a common tactic um, across governments all around the world to, you know, label and vilify activists as terrorists and to use that as a way to justify, you know, tightening laws and, you know, criminalising and locking people up. And on that note, I want to continue talking a little bit more about resistance. You know, you're part of the, um, you're the co-chairperson of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. So what what is currently being done in terms of, you know, resistance efforts and solidarity both in the Philippines, but also here in so-called Australia as well. Yeah, that's good, Max. You know that Australia is uh, giving military aid to the Philippines. And actually, last November 18, the Philippine Secretary of Defense, Lorenzana, and the Australian Defense Minister, Linda Reynolds, they jointly announced that Australia will increase its military aid to the Philippines through the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Program. Many Australians believe that Australia should not support a fascist government or a brutal military, you know, like the Philippine military. So one of our campaigns is to um, to call on different Australian groups or Australians to call the attention of the Australian government, maybe write a letter, protest to them, and ask them to stop military aid to the Philippines. Because we believe, you know... Many of our supporters and Australians believe that if you're supporting a very brutal uh, military and who is who has been, you know, um, who has been accused or alleged to be the perpetrator of many human rights violations in the Philippines, then if you support that, then you are the, the Australian government is seen to be sort of assisting, you know, the military since uh, seem to be assisting the Philippine government in continuing this havoc 
of human rights violations. I think the uh, I think the Australian people have the right to question where the Australian money, tax money, is being spent, and who do we who do we support? You know, are we going to support the Philippine government when it is uh, doing these horrible things to the Filipino people? So there are already several organizations who have written to the Australian government and. Um, we are expanding our campaign, and actually we are planning to go to Canberra to protest in front of the parliament to ask the Australian government to stop the military aid mm-hmm. to the Philippines. You know, the, this uh, Operation Augury, have you heard about that? No. Apparently that Operation Augury is a military partnership, including military aid to the Philippines by the Australian government. Um, I think it was uh, late. Last year or early this year, there was a news that uh, that the budget for that operation was actually hidden. It is not, uh, you know, it is hidden from the public. So they are very secretive about this. Right. And, yeah, exactly. Like you were saying, though, I would say that not only do Australian citizens have a right to know about where you know, Australian taxpayer money is going, but in fact a responsibility, you know, and when we hear about, for example, what's going on in the Philippines, that we can't just say, oh, that's so terrible over there, but that actually through Australian funding backing the Australian military, um, the Filipino military, you know, that, that we are also complicit in that and that we have a responsibility to stand up in solidarity um, in terms of what everyone is doing to fight back against um, repression in the Philippines. So it's true. So just to wrap up, May, if people want to people want to join in, people want to find out more, how can we do that? Well, um PASA has a Facebook account, so you can go to, to PASA Facebook account. So and uh, you you will know more about our campaign and how you can support the the campaign against the harassment, against the brutality of the Philippine military to And if people want to find out more, I imagine they can look up PASA online, Philippines Australia Solidarity Association. um, Facebook. On Facebook. Thank you so much, May, for joining us this morning to let us know about what is going on in terms of solidarity against the military brutality in the Philippines. It's my pleasure, Max. Thank you so much, too. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. We were just chatting with May Kutsakis, co-chairperson of PASA, Philippines Australia Solidarity Association, about military and government repression in the Philippines and what is being done in terms of solidarity efforts over there and here as well. Up next, I'll play a um, track for you. This one is Catch a Vibe by Crown. Military. You, ever, you ever feel a vibe? Like, ain't even got to talk about it, you know what I mean? So, move like a G, you know what I mean? Military mind. Let's get it. What else? Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised. Yeah, don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. So, don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised. Gotta check every man, go say something. Gotta say once and I'ma get it done. I'm a man of five, don't take those lies. The eyes don't lie, no Chico, no Chico. They use real life, only step a beat with a real life. No king when I come around, military like a gun around. No smiles, I carry frowns, I did my miles, I don't fuck around. 
around, no shortcuts don't cut around here. Indigenous things, that's all I did. Payback might be the life they claim. Dark Vader up in the night. With a sharp razor, put a slice of piece of cake with my shell. The table missing. Had no food up in the kitchen. Man of the house, I had to listen. How's eviction? It was listed. Told my mama, we gon' make it. It's a promise, I won't break it. I was feeling kind of spitting. Better time was coming on the mission. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion. Catch a vibe, real. Recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, get the children try to survive, poverty stricken until the vibe, yeah. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, real. Recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. So don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, get the children try to survive, poverty stricken until the vibe, yeah. King of my city, you know that. I need a mic where the show at. I might blow up and never go back. I might grow up and never grow back. If you owe something, better pay now. I'm a god, better pray now. Don't tell me nothing, cause everybody got a great mouth. Don't tell me nothing, I'm a black and a great white shark. King of the treble and bass, yeah. Got a feet rap like a bass head. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion and no debate here. Talk proper, do a grown, I'ma might blow up and never go back. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, real. Recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised, yeah. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, real. Recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. So don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised, yeah. King of my city, you know that. I need a mic with the show at. I might grow up and never go back. I might blow up and never go back. King of my city, you know that. I need a mic with the show at. I might grow up and never go back. I might blow up and never go back. Real, you know? it's yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, we're, yeah. We're scheming. We've been planning this shit. You know yeah, yeah. Military. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What up, what up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Life is good. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> And that was Catch a Vibe by Crown. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855am. And up next, we're going to be playing some audio for you from the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference that took place a few weeks back. We've already played um, some selections from that conference um, on Thursday Breakfast, but now we're going to be playing uh, John Maynard's talk. We'll be playing that in two parts for you this morning. So here's the first part now. As a Warramai man, I begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulon Nation and also their ancestral lands within which I'm most honoured to be a visitor. I want to acknowledge and thank the organisers for the, the kind invitation to come here and speak, in particular Gary, uh, Susanna and Ali. And I think this is such a critically important gathering and forum for us to be uh, taking part in. Now, back in 2002, I was in Washington, D.C., uh, conducting some research at the United States Archives on early Aboriginal political activism and our links with Marcus Garvey. At the time, I attended a very large pro-Palestinian rally with some African-American friends. There were over 70,000 people in attendance and a great day, atmosphere and music. At one point, one of my colleagues pointed out a man in a dark suit with a white shirt, thin black tie, complete with a curly little wire earpiece, standing off to the side. My friend jokingly said, man, he's marked you down in his book. It was just a joke comment and one that I did not take too seriously. But from that day on, for the next several years, I was a target at American airports for constant searching. Probably coincidence, but I was constantly taken out of lines waiting to board planes and questioned 
and my luggage searched. Even when over there with my wife and three boys in 2005, I was taken out, interrogated what I was doing in the United States, where I was going, where I was staying, who were the people and institutions that I would be spending time with. A number of times we even missed flights. And we were even over there with our two little blokes who were in a, in a stroller at the time. Now we were, for the most part of, for the most of that year, the treatment at airports um, encouraged us to just begin travelling by train to uh, avoid the airports. Anyway, and as I said, maybe just coincidence. Now for me, as an Aboriginal man, I feel connected to the struggle of the Palestinian people. As a historian, when you look back across the history of the past few hundred years for both Aboriginal Australia and Palestine, you see a common thread in our current plight of inequality and injustice. We have both suffered in the wake of colonialism, imperialism and greed. In this paper, I will discuss the Aboriginal and Palestinian situation in relation to the history of the 1920s and being placed as the marginalised, oppressed other. Records during the 17th century clearly state that the geographical area of Palestine was a Muslim holy land. This is not to say that Jewish people had not been a part of the various Arab empires of the world across the centuries, but it was not until the late 19th century that there was a growing Jewish mobilisation within Palestine that it was their holy land. Jewish immigration to Palestine accelerated after Theodore Herzl's influential book of 1896, The Jewish State. Herzl's book called for the establishment of a Jewish nation state in the ancient land of Zion, northern Palestine. There had been a small Jewish population living in Palestine prior to the 1890s and they are largely ignored in historical understandings. And this group were not at all concerned with this rising nationalistic surge of Zionism. These Palestinian Jews were known to the Arab population and had lived there peacefully in the country for ages. In 1883, Lawrence Oliphant, a British traveller, described this group as working potato patches and living in perfect amity with their Muslim neighbours. It was the British Zionist Lord Ashley, the Tory Earl of Shaftesbury, who gave the international Jewish community their rallying cry that Palestine was a land without a people for a people without a land. This cry blind to the fact that the population of Palestine around the turn into the 20th century consisted of a Jewish population of just 10% of the 650,000 people in Palestine at that time. Now, a land belonging to no one seems to be a recurring theme with British understandings, as we well know with the doctrine of terra nullius. In Palestine in 1911, the newly arrived Zionists recognised the truth and outlined the course they would pursue, and I quote, There are some simple truisms about Palestine. The first of these truisms is that Palestine is not an empty land. The second is that the land takes its character from the predominant element in its population. Palestine is an Arabic land. To make it a Jewish land, the Jews must become 
the principal element in the population, end of quote. In 1890, at the beginning of rising Jewish immigration into Palestine, one Bedouin farmer protested that his farm, I quote, which was ours since the time of our fathers and our grandfathers, was forcefully taken from us by the strangers who do not wish to treat us according to the norms among tillers of the soil and according to basic human norms of compassion. Another group of dispossessed Palestinian farmers driven from their farms were noted. The men rode on donkeys and the women followed them, weeping bitterly. As they went, they stopped to kiss the stones and the earth. Palestinian intellectual Edward Said reflects, humanism is the only resistance we have against the inhuman practices and injustices that disfigure human history. And Noam Chomsky certainly sees a correlation in the Palestinian and Aboriginal experience. The Jewish settlement in Israel was certainly a settler colonial movement. Like the USA, Australia, the Anglosphere, Israel is one of them. I suspect that there is a kind of intuitive feeling on the part of the population. Look, we did it, it must be right. The settler colonial societies have a different kind of mentality. We did exterminate or expel the indigenous population, so there has to be something justified about it, superior civilisation or other ideas. The stories of Palestinian disposition, dispossession and extermination are similar to the Aboriginal historical experience. In Australia, we had, during the mid-19th century, recovered from the initial onslaught of invasion, occupation, dispossession and cultural destruction to petition government to regain land that our people cleared, fenced, cropped, built homesteads and had livestock grazing. This was a period of success for Aboriginal people as for four and five decades we prospered in southeastern Australia. No one knew the seasons or country better and we combined Western farming with traditional Aboriginal land practices. But in the early decades of the 20th century, the great majority of these land grants were revoked. Aboriginal people were forced off with no compensation or recompense. At one location, an Aboriginal woman in deep despair related how she had lived in daily dread of being moved out of her little house as the land had been sold to a stranger who had ordered her to be prepared to move at any time. She cried bitter tears, Oh, where can I go? I have lived here all my life. At another place, several Aboriginal men revealed they had been driven from their farms and ordered back into the bush through threats from the police. An observer revealed, They told me they had been camped on this place all their lives and now a sale had been arranged and they were told to move away. They were given three weeks to move out or they would be arrested. In New South Wales on the north coast, some 27,000 acres of land that Aboriginal people had regained and worked was torn away and handed to white farmers. The impact of this second dispossession of Aboriginal people has largely been neglected by history. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. 
We've just been playing for you an excerpt from John Maynard's speech at the Black Palestinian Conference, Solidarity Conference. Going back to the Palestinian situation, just prior to World War I, Zionist Jewish immigration to Palestine was rising at an extremely high level. By 1910, the Palestinian population were recognising that there was a full-scale movement to establish a Jewish state. Abdullah Mukhlis, writing at the time with incredible foresight, stated, We, the Arabs, fear that the new settler will expel the indigenous people and we will have to leave our country en masse. Now, a feature of this period was the way in which the new Jewish arrivals, unlike their predecessors, no longer employed Palestinian labour, using instead exclusively Jewish workers and took on the status of a state within a state. This move was backed by British financial support and championed by British Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour and Baron Rothschild. Arthur Ruppen, speaking at the 1913 Zionist Conference in Vienna, outlined the agenda, and I quote, The creation of a Jewish milieu and of a closed Jewish economy in which producers, consumers and middlemen shall all be Jewish. As Fanon rightly argued, bourgeois nationalism is transformed into forms of racism and separatism. Kali al-Sakakini, an influential Palestinian, wrote in 1914 of the approaching storm. What I despise is this principle which the Zionist movement has set up, which is that it should subjugate another national movement to make itself strong and that it should kill an entire nation so that it might live because this is as if it is trying to steal its independence and to take it by deceit out of the hand of destiny. Only months later, the Palestinian Philistine newspaper recognised the distinction between the old Jewish people and the Zionists. Ten years ago, the Jews were living as Ottoman brothers, loved by all the Ottoman races, living in the same quarters, their children going to the same schools. The Zionists put an end to all that and prevented any intermingling with the indigenous population. They boycotted the Arabic language and the Arab merchants and declared their intention of taking over the country from its inhabitants. Now, at the beginning of World War I, Britain had made promises to Sharif Hussein bin Ali of Mecca that if he supported the British war effort against Turkey, Britain would support the establishment of an Arab nation-state. In fact, Britain had no intention of supporting such an Arab nation-state and had been in secret discussions with France on how they would both carve up the Middle East once the war was over. At the end of the war, France invaded Damascus and Britain had already taken Baghdad, Jerusalem and Cairo. Australia played a part in this duplicity and unjust invasion when a nationalist Arab revolt in Cairo was crushed through the assistance of Australian troops. Now, Britain agreed in 1917 to hand Palestine to the Jews as their national home. The early decades of the 20th century proved a devastating time period for both Aboriginal and Palestinian people. In Australia, it witnessed the rise of the first united all-Aboriginal political organisation, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, the AAPA, led by my grandfather, Fred Maynard, 
pictured here with his sister Emma at the rocks in 1927 at the height of his political activity. Now, the AAPA would go on to hold four annual conferences and fight a bitter four-year campaign against the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Board before being hounded out of existence by the police acting for the board. I want to discuss the second conference held by the AAPA in Kempsey in late 1925 in some detail. It is amazing to think that this conference has not been given the historical attention it deserves. The conference held in Kempsey, as I said, late 1925, ran over three days. Both the Maclay Argus and the Maclay Chronicle in Kempsey recorded that over 700 Aboriginal people attended that conference from right across the state, even across the border. All the papers were written and delivered by Aboriginal speakers. The topics, and the papers covered this, the topics of their papers centred on land. They had a national land rights agenda. They were demanding enough land for each and every Aboriginal family in the country. They wanted to stop the board's practice of removing Aboriginal children from their families. They wanted housing, they wanted education, they wanted health, they wanted employment and they wanted the boards, the state boards, completely scrapped and were replaced by an all-Aboriginal board to sit under the Commonwealth Government. Of great cultural significance is the fact that the press noted that several of the papers were delivered in Aboriginal language. Now, this is the time period where the anthropologists are just beginning to break through as the, the um, authorities of Aboriginal culture in this country. And they're quite clearly stating that there is no Aboriginal culture, language or culture left in southeastern Australia. It's gone. Yet here we have a conference in 1925 where several papers are delivered by Aboriginal people in language. They're not going to give papers that people can't understand it. <laughs> and that they come from all over the state and they demand their rights and their cultural distinction. My grandfather delivered one of the papers at the Kempsey Conference titled, and this was covered in the press, The Other Fellow. Although the original paper in which the address was based sadly does not survive, it takes little imagination to realise who he was referring to. Aboriginal people during this period were the maligned and marginalised other. We were a dying race, we belonged to the Stone Age. But here is this paper, well before post-colonialist theory defined the strategic oppression of otherness. Five decades later, Edward Said, in his 1978 book Orientalism, questioned the Western construction of the other in history, literature, art, music and popular culture. Now, the dilemma of Australian consciousness still revolves around the concept of the other and remains deeply entwined within black-white relations of the continent. Whilst Aboriginal people remain historically dispossessed and disadvantaged, the idea in place of the other has shifted dramatically. Despite numerous attempts historically and in the contemporary setting, the European and Jewish quest to belong to Palestine and Australia in any meaningful sense remains trapped and tormented by the past. This inability to deal morally and justly with the past sees the invader solidly in a reversed position as the despised outsider and the firmly entrenched other. In that context, Francis de Gruen 
analyse the eternal struggle that faces white Australia. And I quote, Imagined as the other, the Aborigines seem to be indigenous and yet alien because denied a place in the social order, presented white Australians with a virtual reflection of their own predicament, born locally and possessing the land, but alien because not indigenous like the Aborigine. I will end with a powerful resolution that was delivered by my grandfather at the close of the 1925 conference and this was sent to all sections of the state government and also to the federal government. And he said, As it is the proud boast of Australia that every person born beneath the Southern Cross is born free, irrespective of origin, race, colour, creed, religion or any other impediment, we, the representatives of the original people in conference assembled, demand that we shall be accorded the same full rights of privileges of citizenship as are enjoyed by all other sections of the community. And as he said, we have overriding rights above all others in our land. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. We've just been playing for you an excerpt from John Maynard's speech at the Black Palestinian Conference, Solidarity Conference. Um, jump online, look up about the conference. It was a really incredible um, couple of days of amazing speakers and incredible sort of, yeah, solidarity in action. And up now, this is a new release from Baker Boy and Jess B called Metagen. Music is the metagen. These beats got us out of control. Things around like you never get old. Breaking and popping on my boys, pop like Got us feeling like we out of this world. Beat the mask, get the end on battle. Like a goring alleco. Go more in a summer in a. Go for me, use the muscle to beat. Could you mark all the middle of price? Go hard, never lay back, lay back. Too real, can't fake that, fake that. Smile for the fam, like take that, take that. Shout out to the audience, like way back, way back. You got stage right? No problem. You got neck brace? No problem. You got two. Can't catch that beat, take a deep breath Cause I got this yo
ASB, yeah, the queen is in the building. You better come correct if you're knocking at the kingdom. here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Yalakut Willem Nagi, Australia's First Nations Festival, returns Saturday, February 1st with soulful live music and free family entertainment. Get your funk on to Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, plus Coloured Stone, Kian, The Struggling Kings, Kihu and loads more music from the finest First Nations artists in Australia. Eat and browse your way through market stalls or get hands-on at the many workshops and activities on offer. Yalakut Willem Nagi proudly celebrates Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures across one day where everyone is welcome. Head to ywnf.com.au for details. City of Port Phillip and Yalakut Willem Nagi, 3CR supporters. Carly from 3CR Thursday Breakfast here. I'm about to embark on a series of interviews with counsellors, therapists, therapeutic practitioners and community-based facilitators who are all working with tools and frameworks that don't rely on the criminal justice system. I'm interested in the creative possibilities that people are using in communities across this continent to address interpersonal violence and how people, despite the brutality of police, the legal system and prisons, are working to keep communities safe. Many of us want a world without police, prisons and surveillance, but how do we get there? And in what ways do we need to start caring for each other? Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Dang. Michelle is a counsellor, supervisor and consultant, and her practice is informed by narrative therapy, anti-oppressive, decolonising and intersectional feminist frameworks. Michelle's practice is based in Minjin, Brisbane, and today we're talking about what community accountability means and tools that all of you listeners can implement in your daily lives. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Can you first start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your practice? Yeah, um, well, a bit about myself. Um, I had bad knees, uh, some unresolved family issues and after many years, I'm back living with my mum, who may enter my bedroom at any moment to tell me to clean my room. So that's, <laughs> that's a little bit about myself. Um, other than that, um, I'm a Vietnamese refugee settler, live and work on Yagara and Turrbal land. Um, my family arrived in Australia as refugees in the late 80s, after my family spent the good part of the 80s in detention centres in Hong Kong, where I was born. 
Um, I have my own uh, therapeutic in supervision practice called Healing and Justice, where I provide supervision, therapy, and um, facilitation to groups um, and do workshops. So that's, yeah, a little bit about myself. And what brought you to that work? Oh, I, I really love this question. I appreciate the, um, yeah, the invitation to respond to this because I think we always carry histories with us. Um, you know, as a child, I was always really um, sensitive to violence and injustices, um, and I don't think that has changed. Uh, being subjected to family and gendered violence in the home and then racial violence in the community was probably all the field work I needed to know. Uh, I needed to know uh, to know that the oppression exists uh, and that I wanted to change that. Um, so I spent a good part of the last decade working in organizations committed to supporting survivors of sexual and domestic violence. And what I've learned is that as a society, we have yet to really deliver on justice and accountability for people who have been harmed. And the systems that we are told are here to protect us uh, often cause incredible amounts of harm. Um, so at the time I was questioning uh, prisons and policing, I attended an accountability workshop about seven years ago that kind of blew me away. I was like, wait, there are things that we can do outside the system. There are ways of transforming this harm. Um, yeah, that that was such a, a critical um, uh, turning point for me. Um, and finally, I think I came into this work because, um, you know, I was really conscious of uh, my location, you know, privilege and responsibilities. Um, I think I have, yeah, a lot of, like, educational, professional privilege, and I really want to weaponize that to kind of push back on institutions. And I think there is something kind of also really healing to me and, and liberating to work on creating a, a world that senses safety, dignity, and, and belonging for, for everyone. Yeah, that's kind of how I came into this, into this work. And what does community accountability mean to you? Um, this is a good question. Community accountability to me is a, a framework uh, or approach for responding to violence, harm and abuse without causing more harm. Um, so responses do not rely on the state, do not reinforce violence, and they center healing, accountability and safety um, for all involved. I mean, for me, really, uh, what it means is about how we relate to one another. It's really about learning how to be in relation with one another, especially when things are hard. Um, it's about repair and how we respond to the ruptures in our everyday lives. So I, typically, I think often people associate uh, community accountability with uh, sexual violence or domestic violence, and there are some really good structured frameworks for responding to these harms. Uh, but I'm also really interested in um, community accountability in the everyday, you know, how we can nurture clear communication skills, how we practice everyday interventions, how we learn to apologize, how we learn to support one another uh, when we're not having our best days. And, and for me, um, the other meaning of community accountability is really trying to reclaim self-determination and skills and power to care for one another and unlearn helplessness. Um, and what I mean by that is that, like, in I think in Australia, when we believe that, um, we're often told that to turn to professionals in the state when there is some kind of violence, um, and the prison industrial complex is often held up by this binary of 
powerful and powerless, you know, of the knowledgeable and unknowledgeable, and the latter being that, you know, um, ordinary people are not equipped, qualified or skilled to respond to harm. And, you know, like, tribalism is what's called triple zero in an emergency, and um, this this continues through adulthood, you know, uh, this message um, that in times of crisis, we think that the authorities would de-escalate the situation, will provide safety for the victim. But, you know, as, as you know, Carly well knows that, like, um, they make the situation often worse. They escalate the crisis. I often think about the police being the um, epitome of rape culture, that they violate consent, they ignore boundaries, they use brutal violence and threats. And this is really normalised and, and framed as um, an appropriate response to harm. So that's kind of a bit of a long-winded response, but I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It is such a huge kind of topic now that people are talking about. And I think a lot of people are now looking to alternatives to um, calling the police. But in doing so, then they're looking for another substitute, another institution, another organisation. And sometimes that's not always the case. So I'm really interested in what tools you've found useful um, to teach people about incorporating in their lives. Yeah, yeah, good, good reflection. Um, I mean, there are lots of different tools. Um, one tool that I've been pretty excited to practice and like share with people is called uh, pod mapping, um, which comes from uh, and it was developed by the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective in um, the Bay Area in California. Um, and they offer um, a PodMap worksheet sheet on the website, which is really useful um, and helpful. But um, yeah, I think I, I really like this model. It's like a really relationship-based model of um, responding to harm because I think it really gets us to be uh, more specific about what we mean by community. Uh, often in our um, work, community, the term community is really vague and can be a romanticized term. And, you know, when, when shit goes down and I just can't, you know, we just can't, like, call on, you know, the Vietnamese community or the queer community to help me. I, I need to call on just a couple of people who I know who would have my back. And in pod mapping, this is called my pod. Um, a pod is a very specific group of people for a specific purpose. So um, pods are a more useful way to understand uh, relationships and the supports that we need uh, if we have been harmed or if we need to be held accountable. Um, so just to put this in like some concrete terms, um, if I were to use a pod map worksheet uh, about um, who I need to call in a mental health crisis, um, the first thing I would do is to write my name in the center circle and the surrounding bold outline circles is my pod. So I would write the names of the people who are in my pod um, and the creators of the pod map um, encourage people to write the names of actual individuals instead of such things as like my church group or my neighbors. Um, so the, the closest circles have a, a heavy border and pod people are people you know who you can really rely on. And these aren't necessarily family or friends. So so I'm in the circle and I might have like, you know, you Carly and um, Karen and Naomi as my three pod people. 
right? And then, and so the next layer of circles are marked by dotted lines rather than solid lines. And they, uh, these people are, pe- are like immovable. They are people who could move into your pod, um, and, but need a little bit more work. For example, I have some friends who could support me in a crisis, but I'm not too sure about the understandings around mental health or what they might do in a critical moment. So they seem like the kind of people who might be supported, but I need to check. And then the largest circle finally is um, on the edge of the paper or the page are the networks, communities and groups that could be resources for you. Um, for example, for me, it might be like mental health services, practitioners who aren't going to involuntarily hospitalize me, and practitioners who engage in good harm reduction rather than punitive responses. Um, so what I really love about this PodMap is that um, there is a consent and negotiation process whereby you ask the people who you have been, uh, who you put in the circle. So I would ask you if you consent to being the person I can call upon when harm happens or when support is required. And I feel like initiating this kind of conversation helps to be really deliberate and transparent about the support um, you're requesting and helps to, to create a culture of consent. Um, the organizers kind of, or the creators of this uh, tool recognize that like pods may shift over time and you need, as your needs and relationships shift or as people's uh, locations shift as well. Um, sometimes like I think what PodMaps do is also reveal the gaps that you have in your network. So um, pods say a lot about what's happening and what needs to happen. And it's not really uncommon for people to have one or two people in their pod. Um, it's not a popularity contest, but really an opportunity to reflect on why we have so few relationships when we need them. Um, I really think the other benefit of PodMaps is that these, um, you can really think about the supports you need or call upon before you get into crisis mode, right? So, like, often, like, when we, like, hit rock bottom or, like, some violence is um, happening... That is not a good time to think about, like, let's create a, like, plan and, like, map out these things because we're not thinking, we don't do our best thinking in crisis. Um, so, yeah, I think it really focuses on preparation. So, yeah, those are the things that I, that's the tool that I'm using at the moment I really appreciate. And, Michelle, do you use this tool with people that you're working with in your counselling and narrative therapy? Yes. Yes, I actually do. I've been... Um, only probably in the last year or even half a year I've been experimenting or like practicing it with um, yeah, people who come to see me and it's actually really, really useful. I've found it um, helpful in, in thinking about um, mapping people's intimate networks um, and it, it's really helpful because I think, particularly in terms of therapy, uh, what happens is that people... Um, often really get stuck into thinking that they should tackle problems on their own. Um, and it's this kind of very individualist and capitalist agenda driven by like self-care narratives. And so when we actually map out, okay, like what are the relationships that you need to call upon for support? Who do you need to ask? I, I really like that it's a bit of a commissioning process. And what I mean by that is like it gives people permission to rely on others. And it also destigmatizes and normalizes help seeking. This is like you can't you can't get out of this hole alone, right? You can't mm. do this work on your own. We have to have people around us 
And I also really like, you know, in, in therapy practices that it's a very simple um, and visual tool. And it, you know, once, once I've, like, explained it to them, they got it and they can, like, show it to other people and they don't need me to facilitate it with their friends. So they've got it. Mm. Yeah. And when have you found this tool useful um, with either yourself or the people that you work with or your friends? Yeah, I have done a couple of drafts for myself. Um, I haven't actually, um, I, I don't know if I should admit this, but I haven't actually gone to the second process in, like, going to these people and um, speaking their consent if they want to be on my pod. Um, and I think that's because, you know, there's been some, you know, uh, spoken and unspoken agreements already in place that's happened organically between us um, that I can rely on them. But I think it's still really useful to, um, yeah, to approach them more intentionally and ask them because, that's about like respecting their boundaries as well. So yeah, I've I've done a couple. I found them useful, um, but yeah, I need to like uh, follow through on the whole process myself. Mm. I have done a pod map myself, um, but this yeah. was last year now, and um, I have to say I did go through to the second process of asking consent, which I think. Yeah, prior to that, I mean, I have a lot of close friends and I would definitely call on them in times when Mm -hmm. I thought that mostly, yeah, that I'd caused harm and wanted to repair that harm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, my friends would be there initially um, and they talk me through those processes and then Mm -hmm. afterwards they wouldn't be able then to check in um, later on because I'd only ask them to address that harm that I'd caused in the moment. But then Mm -hmm. I feel like, consistently checking in with people who are on your pod map and asking um, for that constant kind of feedback um, and dialogue is more helpful in creating a world where yeah we care for each other and where we're not um, at all going to institutions which cause more harm such as the police yeah absolutely and as you were saying that, like, what I what came to mind was, like, it kind of creates a, a bit of a ripple effect. So I imagine, like, you approaching your friend saying, hey, can I put you on my accountability pod so when I cause harm, you know, you can help to hold me accountable around these things. But that might, like, trigger in them, like, I go, oh, like, this is something that's possible. And I want a pod as well to help me... Um, you know, work through repair. And so it's it's really, like, I think it's creating a world that, you know, as you said, like, kind of work really imagining and creating the world that we want to um, have and doing it in a really tangible and simple way. Mm. Have you ever um, worked with somebody who's tried this tool and it hasn't worked? I haven't, um, but perhaps I haven't tested it out enough um, to know what, hasn't worked, um, but I, I mean, I guess I can imagine that it might be a real big challenge for folks who don't yet have many reliable relationships in their lives, um, that they might feel despondent or despairing because it reveals the absence of care and support in their lives, um, but I mean, I think breaking isolation is always painful and hard work, um, and it might, like, you know, you, know, you might approach someone and they're like 
it doesn't reveal how you can uh, communicate that, right? So you might experience rejection. It might mean searching for some time. Uh, but I think there is also something hopeful about trying, about attempting to, to move away from isolation. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Kylie, if you've had experiences yourself or others using it and it's kind of flopping. Um, no, but I do have a very small pod map um, and okay. the people that are on my pod are very close to me. Um, and I think that it's all in the practice and it's all in the trying this out. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we'll never, I actually think that we'll never really fail because mm-hmm. we are trying to, uh, something different. And um, mm-hmm. the alternative is a breakdown in uh, a friendship or unresolved conflict or the police. And they're already causing so much harm in our communities. Um, and I yeah. think that if we actually didn't have police, we would rethink safety completely differently. Mm. Like, would our world yeah. be safe if there weren't police? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate you kind of, like, saying that thing, particularly around, like, it, it won't really fail, like, what would be the alternative and the police alternative or not doing anything alternative is like a lot worse. Um, and I, yeah, definitely remember like Miriam Carver like talking about pushing beyond the like success failure binary that we get caught up in. Um, and to think more about like trying and improving framework rather than success failure. So like, I really appreciate you naming that. And I think, yeah, like, this pod mapping might be hard or like tools might be hard, relationship building is hard and yet we, we've got to keep persisting because otherwise, um, yeah, we rely on those dominant systems which are so harmful. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us on 3CR. My pleasure. It's great to, to be in conversation with you again, Carly. Michelle Dang. Michelle is a counsellor, supervisor and consultant and her practice is informed by narrative therapy, anti-oppressive, decolonising and intersectional feminist frameworks. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. And up next, um, I'm going to play a track for you. This is a new release from Alice Skye called I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good. i 
You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. We heard the track, I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good by Alice Skye. And up next, we're going to listen to Before Daylight by the Marindas. We made a home where we can walk together, where love is free to be alive forever. Three CR Thursday breakfast eight five five a.m. and we're joined on the line now by the wonderful Amal. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Amal. 
Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're so lucky to chat to you again because it was only late last year that we last spoke on Thursday Breakfast. Um, but for people who didn't tune into that interview, could you just remind listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are? Okay, uh, my name is Amal Liotlu. Uh I'm a performer, uh, storyteller, uh, activist, uh, um, public speaker, uh, do many, wear many hats, and uh, with my performance and speaking, I like to bring uh, the stories of trans people of colour, especially women, uh, but also bring a cultural dynamic, so bringing my uh, fabulousness of being fafafine uh, into white spaces. And you actually have a event happening at Midsummer tonight on the 23rd of January. What What is that? Can you tell listeners a bit about that event? Okay, the event is called Pacific Essence Tales of a Migrant Plantation. Uh, it looks at LGBTIQ narratives from Pacific Diaspora. So it's a panel discussion, uh, an exhibit of particip- uh, Pacific participation uh, via an organization, uh, Pacific Island LGBTIQ organization uh, called Utopia New York, uh, that marched in the very, our very first uh, Pacific contingency to march at the World Pride, uh, the 50th anniversary that was last year. Um, but also, we also have performances that's been able to bring Pacific stories uh, to the forefront. We've never had a Pacific Island event, uh, main event in the Midsummer program. So this historically, it's the first, and it's one of three. So we're very proud to uh, represent, but also to bring our stories, uh, you know, um, you know, whether it be laughing, crying, but where we're able to um, share with uh, even non-Pacific Islanders uh, just the, the um, you know, what a Pacific person or a queer person might perhaps go through the experiences that we go through coming from a cultural background. Mm. Yeah, the fact that this is the first um, the first year where there's Pacific Islander events in midsummer is really shocking and it says a lot about I guess the 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 history or the tendencies of the mainstream LGBTIQ movement I feel um, and on that note I wanted to first of all can we just shift to an international perspective because you mentioned um, your involvement in World Pride in New York and you sent me some really incredible photos um, of that event can you speak a bit about what how that was important to be involved in that and what that meant for you? Okay. There there are pros and cons to being uh, involved in the overall week uh, uh, World Pride. It was also, you know, the the positives for uh, our Pacific community was that um, we were able to be represented, represented um, I felt one of the challenges, though, that I did see was that, um, you know, so, you know, and there was a challenge, was that, um, you know, apart from also the march that they had for it, 
there was also a challenge, um, what you call it, there was also another march from LGBTI community um, that had another march going in another part of New York uh, in the city regarding, um, you know, the commercialism of, um, you know, it, you know, it being what it is, the world pride that seeing all these businesses, mainstream businesses, uh, having merchandise. And I felt some of the points that were raised in that opposing march was that, um, you know, we have these businesses that have come to the forefront and want to sell merchandise, you know, queer merchandise, rainbow merchandise. Um, but, you know, my take on and where I saw it was, where the where are these mainstream, um, you know, like straight, cis straight organisations with their money, ongoing money to support LGBTI communities? Example, homeless youth, you know, which you know the numbers are quite high in the US. So you know, considering those factors, um, and also this thing of having police presence. Um, in you know, in such things, you know, police and uniforms. So there were some of the issues raised. It was a great awareness for LGBTI communities, but you know, the challenge is how do we navigate our spaces to make them even safer? Um, but also taking those things and being able to weigh in those options of um, you know, these challenges that other groups, you know, other groups within LGBTIQ spaces. Um, feel and make them feel safe um, and that the support that we have from, you know, mainstream businesses that they're, you know, if you're going to come to the forefront and make T-shirts and get money and, you know, please, you know, be able to bring that 24-7, you know, 365 days throughout the year. Don't just make it, you know, just on this one day that, you, you know, you know, this one time of the year that you're going to make it a it's a celebration of LGBTIQ rights um, and yet you know we feel like you know it feels like you're being put in this position to you know be highlighted yet your your community is still facing um, discrimination you know the trans woman of color deaths in the US last year was huge and still to this day, trans people, not just in the U.S., um, you know, they get the way that they're treated. This is around the world. Um, and so those um, things, you know, besides us having these celebrations, we also must realize uh, the social impacts and the social implications that, um, you, know, minor- you know, some of our minority groups in that acronym um, you know, what what we encounter on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, it's like a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. You can have a celebration, but we must remember also um, never forget to, you know, to affirm our uh, places into these spaces and help our other queer siblings who, you know, encounter, you know, that don't ha- that are not afforded the same privileges, you know, as, say, uh, a white, a white cis gay male may, um, you know, be able to, you know, you know that privilege of, you know, being a white cis gay male. So it's being able to bring certain social issues to the table. Um, and, you know, that was the interesting one about being at World Pride. It was, 
I think for me it was it was lovely to see all this um all this difference and this uh you know, it was so great to see uh great lesbian love. You know, mm. I I very rarely see that here in Australia, you know, openly. Mm. You know, from women of colour here. It, I find queer women of colour you know, if it's a queer woman on colour, you know, I find those are a lot more discreet here. And mm. um, I don't, I, I feel it may be with the climate, you know, the the, the cultural climate here. Uh, but in the US, it was beautiful to see that. And I went, I was able to attend a, there were so many wonderful events going on. And so I was able to attend a LBQ Women's Conference as well. Mm. And it was just beautiful, for, like for someone such as myself who, you know, who struggled with my own cultural identity in the 80s, not, you know, here in Australia, not seeing many uh, people of colour, you know, uh, in spaces that I went into. Mm. So trying to navigate that uh, back then in the 80s was challenging. Mm. Um, and I did struggle with my own colour identity. It was just not the norm. And so to be able to see that in spaces, you know, this world, um, this LB, you know, our GLBTIQ woman, uh, movement, uh, is forever changing. And so to be able to have, you know, my culture be able to be celebrated in those spaces, um, is quite an empowering thing, especially like I said back in the 80s, mm. uh, being the, Pacific Island child that would go into queer spaces at a very early age and feel feel uncomfortable because I didn't feel I could really celebrate who I was. So, yeah, it was so um, important to be there. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Our guest is Amal Leotalu. And Amal, to um, switch back to talking about the event that you're putting on tonight and the you know, the, the power of creating these spaces. Um, there's a line in the description for the event, and I forget it now, but around, you know, not just having a seat at the table, but rearranging the table or inviting other folks to the table. Can you put, speak a bit more to that to that idea that's sort of behind this space that you're welcoming others into? Yes. We don't just want Pacific Island people to come. Uh, all non-white uh, Pacific Island people, you're most welcome at our table. It's a cultural, it's a, it's a, it's a Samoan Pacific Island cultural thing that Pacific Island people are known to, um, this connection of family. So we know as rainbow community, as queer community, we also view other people as family. So we welcome community, wider community. We want to be able to share our lives and share our stories, um, that, um, you know, that this thing of looking through things through a cultural lens, from a various cultural lens, there may be a, a you know, there, uh, an educational, informative way of seeing things from a different perspective. Um, we're not asking for you to come in agreement. We come, we're asking you to be open to, you know, also challenging yourself. You might come and think, wow, I've never thought of looking at life in, in a different culture, in a, you know, another glass lens. So we welcome all to our community event. Um, there's, there's going to be some amazing entertainment, but just the stories that are going to be told. Um, we've got some amazing, uh, fascinating panelists. 
and just the fact that we're able to share our own, you know, identities, especially being that, you know, sometimes in the, you know, like in Pacific culture, uh, LGBTIQ, we have different, our acronyms are different. We don't have that, you know, it, you know, LGBTIQA plus is a Western concept, but we have terms like ma'u from Hawaii, fafafine, fakaleiti orere, and these are terms that uh, are terms that best identify us, even in you know even in Western culture spaces, and they're so important to us. It's being able to have some kind of validity, or you know, um, in in spaces where we're able to uh, look upon ourselves and be able to bring that. Um, my work that I do is always about this, um, having visibility, so being o- able to own your fabulousness, and for me, owning my fafafineness, um, and you know, just being able to work from, you know, work from that, you know, and be uh, be able to alter the blueprint and also, uh, you know, come to the table and rearrange it. You know, own everything that is fabulous about you. Own everything that is, um, you know, for me is, you know, bringing it to the table and being able to slay at the table. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. It's going to be so excellent. And how can listeners find out more if they are interested to come along tonight? Okay, you can go onto the Melbourne Museum website or you can also go onto the Midsummer website and um, uh, the tickets are just about sold out, so which is really encouraging. So, you know, um, get in there. We're looking forward to having everybody. It starts at 6 tonight and it goes till 8.30 um, and it's just going to be a wonderful night of sharing um, and being able to, you know, bring these ta- uh, stories to the table. Mm. Well, listeners, you better get in there quick. Um, and if, if folks do miss out on tickets tonight, how can people find out more about your own work? Or also, would you encourage people to check out other work at Midsummer, particularly? Yes, uh, there is a possibility in, with, the, with the event itself. We're looking at making it go live to air mm. on Facebook. Otherwise, you also you can go onto my, uh, add me on Facebook, or I've got a page or Instagram, so it's Amal Leota Lu, uh, L-E-O-T-A-L-U, um, and yeah, that will be. We're looking at having Pacific Essence also in Pride March, and our theme there is Save Our Planet, Save Our Pacific Queer Displacement. Mm. So we're bringing uh, a political edge to Midsummer March, so look out for us. Uh, and if you'd like to get involved, then just go on to the thing um, and get more information. So I think we, we've got the Pacific Essence uh, event page going, and so there'll be something in there on how to get involved. That we're going to be bringing a queer climate change uh, Pacific angle to Midsummer March. Mm. So we're looking forward to that as well with the way, you know, with all the climate change stuff that's going on at the moment, we we want to bring a message of, you know, this is something that 
community needs to look at the the fact that there's going to be a community of displaced people, mm. and um, we really need to look at looking after our queer siblings, regardless if they were Pacific Islander. But you know, these are other countries that will be displaced in the long run, um, and what can we do to have you know um, have a bit of attention to that mm. because. You know, as we've seen in the past, the the history of the way we've looked after our own uh, people that are, are being displaced from other countries here is is not is not positive. So we want to kind of bring that attention um, in the long run that our queer people, you know, despite our cisgender people, they will be displaced. And what can we bring to attention? Also, the climate change. Um, situation as we've seen with the bushfires yes. you know so you know apart from um our event as well we also want to bring a social consciousness to community on what we can do to um uh really pay pay attention to these uh these social issues that um that will really see a big displacement of queer, that will see a displacement of queer mm. people. And if put into that position, it's going to be challenging for that queer person. So what can we do as a community to really raise awareness and, um, you know, uh, provide a safe space to, for our own queer siblings? Cause it's going to happen. Um, yes. and we need to, you know, we need to be aware, aware of it. Mm. So. Yeah, so we want, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm afraid we're just out of time there now, but um, yeah. I'd absolutely love you to come back on the show in the next few weeks to talk more about um, queerness, displacement, and climate justice, because um, as you say, that is such an important conversation that we need to be oh, having. Um, you know, you, you know we, the, that bushfire that happened, those of Australia, you know, those that, you know, identify as queer, they're so lucky that, you know, like I'm not saying with the fire, but, you know, the fact that, their displacement is within Australia. Mm. Can you imagine if that was the us and we're having to go to another country and so we had to go to the US and US doesn't have an, a good, you know, even like Australia, we don't have a good history in the way we treat people mm. that have been displaced. Mm. You know, we only have to look at Manus and Manus Island and Nauru. So, Exactly. Yeah, I'd love to come on. You've got you've got my details. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So let's continue that conversation very yeah. soon. And meanwhile, yeah, cannot encourage listeners enough to jump online and snap up those last few tickets um, to yeah. your event tonight and to follow your work in general. Thank you so much, Amal, for joining us on the show this great. morning. That'd be great. Thank you. Look forward to it. <laughs> That's all we've got time for today. Stay tuned for Lost in Science. Um, Tune back in tomorrow for Friday breakfast. And we will be back with Thursday breakfast next week. Hope everyone has a great day. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.